We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Merry Christmas. We'll be saying that all week here on the podcast. And I also want to just say if you have any questions for us to answer, we will be doing that on an episode this week. So send those to radio at thefederalist.com, which you can always use to get in touch with us. We're joined today by one of my favorite people in D.C., and I guess if I have to say this, outside D.C. as well, Rachel Bovard of the Conservative Partner Institute. She is the Partnership Institute. She's the Senior Director of Policy there. We're also very lucky to have her on board at The Federalist as Senior Tech Columnist, where I'm sure you've read her work. She is rather prolific. Rachel, thanks for stopping by. Well, thanks for having me, and Merry Christmas to you as well. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad to know you were not a participant in the war on Christmas. Not yet, anyway. It's still <laughs> early in the day. We'll see. That's, that's true. <laughs> I haven't dealt with traffic yet, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah, more to come. Okay, so Rachel um, has been tracking. Uh, I mean, this is something I don't think a lot of people actually understand that transpired in the Senate this month. And Rachel wrote a great article in the Washington Examiner um, kind of explaining and breaking down what happened and why it was sort of outrageous for Republican leadership. Um, Rachel, I'm just going to ask, because you understand this way better than I can even introduce, like do a basic introduction of what happened, because you've actually worked in legislative procedure. I mean, you literally trained staffers in legislative procedure. <laughs> uh, but but tell us what you wrote the Examiner article about and why it matters. So this entire story focuses around the debt ceiling, which has been sort of haunting Washington, you know, here and then, you know, over the last year, basically. And the debt ceiling, you know, if people aren't familiar with it, is essentially the nation's borrowing limit um, has to be raised to allow us to borrow, to pay off our debts. Otherwise, the country defaults. And you've pro you're probably familiar with the brinksmanship around the debt ceiling. You know, every time this comes up, people are like, you're going to shut down the government. No, you're going to make us default. It's, it's a political football. And, you know, this has been going on in Washington for the last roughly six months. Um, Republicans helped Democrats in the Senate raise the debt ceiling in October. Ten Republicans voted to do that, gave them cloture, which is the 60 vote requirement. But after that occurred, Mitch McConnell was like, look, we're not going to help you again. You need to figure it out. What was interesting about this is that, you know, that was kind of a laudable position because uh, Democrats had you know, a couple of ways to do this. They didn't actually need Republicans to do it. They could have done it through the reconciliation procedure, which passes the Senate by 51 votes. Under reconciliation, you can actually do an entirely new bill to raise the debt ceiling. So they had a bullet they could fire to raise the debt ceiling if Republicans, you know, weren't going to help them do it. But the thing you have to understand about this entire debate for this entire thing to make sense is that despite the protestations of Republicans, both parties in Washington want the debt ceiling to be raised. Mm, okay, okay, so explain that. That's that's probably the most important point here. Right. And I think it, it, understanding this is critical to understanding everything that's going on and why it's such a mirage and theater and so stupid. Um, this is, you know, I use the term uniparty a lot and people and I, I don't use it glibly because it actually exists, right? But even though there are you are people, fairly glib. Right, <laughs> in a lot of ways, yes. But I am deadly <laughs> serious about this uniparty. And it's this idea, right, that you have 
an entrenched establishment, you know, Republican and Democrat working together on issues they both want to pass, regardless of what they say rhetorically. Both of them are self-interested in in something like the debt ceiling moving forward. Okay, so why does Mitch McConnell, Republican leader Mitch McConnell, cocaine Mitch himself, why does he want to raise the debt ceiling? Because he has no opposition to doing so, right? The, the, the right wing opposition to the debt ceiling is twofold. One, because we continue to raise the debt ceiling into oblivion. I think it's at something like 30 trillion right now, right? And so for the fiscal conservatives, that's of concern. But second, there's a lot of conservatives who say, this isn't something that we want to do. So if we're going to do it, if you're going to force us to do it, we should get something in exchange. We should leverage this right from for something from democrats or we should make democrats go on the record alone to to do this mm-hmm. because at the end of the day you know the uniparty doesn't care right they don't care they, they have no objection to raising the debt limit they have no objection to passing you know these policies that progressives or conservatives may oppose you know but but they all want to go forward now there are political costs to doing so, which is why they cloak it in all this rhetoric of opposition, when in reality, their actions say otherwise. And this is exactly what happened with the debt ceiling, because McConnell wound himself around this axle of saying, we're not going to help the Democrats do it. And so he had to create this fiction whereby it looked like Democrats were doing this alone, but Republicans were actually giving them a helping hand. And that's exactly what happened because he used this sort of tried and true tactic that we now see employed, you know, in these kind of, you know, situations where you know, whatever party doesn't want to put themselves on record, where they will tee up a 51 vote uh, vote, but they'll need 60 votes to do it. So let me just back up and explain how this works. Yeah, please. <laughs> so es- yeah. So essentially what happened was McConnell's like, fine, we're not going to help you. But what we will do is we'll pass a piece of legislation that's that creates a one time filibuster carve out for the debt ceiling. Mm-hmm. And by carving it out of the filibuster, you remove the need for cloture, which is that 60 vote requirement. So he's essentially setting up a vote that says just this one time only. And the legislation literally said, like, this rule expires after passage of the debt ceiling. This one time only, we will allow Democrats to pass the debt ceiling at 51 votes. Mm-hmm. Now, the duplicitous and very insincere part of this is to that even to get to that vote, to actually pass the debt ceiling at 51 votes, you have to pass the legislation that sets up that vote. And that underlying legislation is subject to the filibuster, right? It's under the regular order. So it requires 60 votes. So if you follow me, 10 Republicans, it was actually 14 Republicans. They only needed 10, right? There's 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats. They needed 10 Republicans. They got 14. 14 Republicans voted to set up to allow this vote on the debt ceiling, which only Democrats would, would then vote for. So they 14 Republicans voted for the debt ceiling before they then voted against the debt ceiling, all to create this talking point that they oppose something that they really support. It is like the apex of Washington politics. Right. And they the talking point that they opposed raising the debt ceiling, but they support the carve out. Right. Yes. Yeah. So insane. That is insane. Well, it's so there's like layers of insane here. And and the first is is just that. Right. That this is just this is why people hate Washington, Mm -hmm. because nobody has the guts to actually vote for what they, you know, they actually believe in. They have to cloak it in, you know, these layers of procedure to hide their their true intention. When, and 
and and that's what it's, I mean, rightfully annoys the rest of us, right? Because it's theater. It's literally theater. It's we're going to vote for it before we vote against it to make it look like we, we oppose it when we really support it. People hate that. But the second layer of insanity here is that it was so unnecessary, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. you had 10 Republicans who, you know, made up the 60 votes necessary to raise the debt ceiling in October. Mm-hmm. So you already had 10 Republicans on the record, just make them do it again. But second, Democrats already could have done this through the reconciliation process. Now, it would have taken work. Mm-hmm. Reconciliation is, is a burdensome vehicle, requires a lot of floor time, but they could have done it. So there were two, you know, you could have just done it straight up and made people walk the plank on it, or you could have made Democrats do it. But instead, we created this complex procedural rigmarole. Now, the second element to this story, and I think what prompted me to write that you know, short op-ed about it was the consequence of what was done here, because the political context of, of in which this is all taking place that, you know, people are probably aware of is that, you know, Democrats have been threatening the legislative filibuster since they took the majority. Right. And that's the 60 vote requirement. Um, it's the cloture requirement, basically, that requires or that requires 60 votes to pass legislation in the Senate. Now, this used to be in place for the judiciary and for executive branch nominations as well. That is completely gone. The judicial filibuster is gone. And so there was there's concern that the legislative filibuster would go the same way. So Democrats have been actively talking about, you know, using the quote unquote nuclear option on the legislative filibuster. There are some moderates in their party Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema, probably a lot more than that, <laughs> to be honest, mm-hmm. that don't support nuking the entire thing. And so there was discussion of, well, you know, we'll do it in a way that we call filibuster reform. And that is we'll create special carve outs of the legislative filibuster for worthy matters like voting rights. You know, you can just fill in the blank climate change, you know, whatever else it is that that Democrats deem, you know, shouldn't be subject to this horrible partisan filibuster. So that's the context in which this is taking place. And Republicans, you know, have been standing in opposition to this until they confront the debt ceiling. And then they're like, you know, what would work really great. <laughs> a carve out from for the from the legislative filibuster. That's mm-hmm. how we're going to pass the debt ceiling. And it's like, are you kidding me? So Republicans have just agreed to the premise that they've been standing against all year, which is that the legislative filibuster should be subject to carve outs. And it's just incredible to me, because, of course, as soon as this happens, Democrats seize on it. Right. To use the old pounce of pounce and seize. That's what they do. And, you know, they Democrats come to the floor, uh, multiple senators from Chuck Schumer to Raphael Warnock come to the Senate floor and they're like, we've just done this for the debt ceiling. Why can't we do this for voting rights? Mm-hmm. And Schumer, Chuck Schumer announced today that they will be taking a vote in January on this voting rights, le- rights legislation. He hasn't said specifically what the form will be, if he will try to go nuclear to create a 50, 51 vote carve out. But it's an option that he now, you know, he's seen he's just seen the Senate do it. So why wouldn't he try to apply it to his priorities as well? I think your point about accepting the premise is hugely important. And I'm wondering if you can explain if this is an example. And I take it the answer is yes. This is sort of a leading question. If this is an example of how uh, tactical concessions that are sort of smugly strategized about by Republican leadership in Washington actually amount to sort of uh, very gradual, then then it becomes much more rapid erosion of 
the power that Republicans have in Washington. Is that sort of what we're seeing here, that McConnell's strategic concessions are actually just that, they're concessions. They're not wins, um, as I think some people in Washington might see them, but they are really concessions that are going to just advantage Democrats in the long run. I think the use, your use of the term erosion is is very apt here because that's exactly what is happening. It, it is a slow erosion, you know, which I think people try to spin into this tactical victory. You saw people be like, well, but it worked. Democrats, you know, had to raise the debt ceiling alone. And it's like, well, but not really, because 14 Republicans set up the vote for them. Like the real vote in that situation wasn't the vote to actually raise the debt ceiling. It was the cloture vote that set it up. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's it's a slow erosion that to sort of paraphrase Hemingway, it's like, you know, very slowly and then all at once. The great Molly Hemingway, the great novel. Right. Yes. (laughs) Right. I didn't mean Ernest Hemingway at all. Um, But I think it's important to point out because we we saw this from the point where the judicial filibuster underwent its first erosion, right? Under Harry Reid in 2013, he's, he just said, you know what? The first thing I'm, I'm just going to exempt certain categories of nominations and judges from this filibuster. Right. Within five years, it was completely gone, completely gutted from everything from the district court judges to you know, certain uh, cabinet level nominees to all the way up to the Supreme Court. It was completely gone. You really do pin that on on Harry Reid. Well, he started the process. Um, McConnell finished it. Um, But yeah, I mean, once you start this, once you go down this path, it's like a snowball rolling downhill, right? (laughs) This is just how human nature works. So then devil's advocate is, (laughs) I don't mean that literally, but eh, maybe Rachel would. Um, (laughs) Is McConnell maybe recognizing that the ball is rolling down the hill and saying, well, listen, this is, we have to play ball. Um, we, we have to sort of do the same thing. Is, is that a legitimate counter argument? So I think in, I don't even, I think in his mind, and this is based on the talking points I've heard from his office, you know, and then the people that sort of take his position is that he didn't even doesn't even appear to see it that way. He doesn't he doesn't view this as heading off a larger threat. He views this as simply an extension of what the Senate has done in the past for certain. He's trying to make the analogy between how the Senate handles things like the Congressional Review Act, for instance, Mm -hmm. which allows a vote of disapproval at 51 votes for executive branch regulations. Or you'll you'll hear him cite trade promotion authority, um, you know, which could be which was set up in the same way. Right. A 60 vote bill that sets up a 51 vote approval. Same thing with the Iran nuclear deal. If you remember, it was a similar construct. And these are things that his office has pointed to, to say, what do you mean? We do this all the time. I would say these things are fundamentally different from what McConnell just did. And here's why, especially with TPA and the Iran nuclear deal, which was the closest, I think the closest analogies because they were one-offs um, where the CRA is sort of a statutory categorical exemption from executive branch regulations, which I don't think applies here. But TPA and uh, Iran nuclear deal are most similar. But in that situation, you almost have, you know, the executive, you have, you have Congress deferring to the executive and saying, look, this is a foreign policy matter. The president has to be able to go negotiate with these countries in some good faith, you know, and say, look, I'm not 
I'm not going to promise you this and then go get screwed by the Congress because they've set up this thing where I only need approval at 51 votes, right? There's like a foreign policy element to those things where the executive and the legislature always have kind of played ball with each other with the understanding that there's that negotiation going on. What happened here is just fundamentally different because the debt ceiling has always been (laughs) approved at 60 votes absent the reconciliation procedure. Mm-hmm. So you took something that was always, you know, subject to cloture. It was always subject to the regular order. And you made a one-time removal. You And that, I really mean that he agreed to the premise that Democrats have been arguing from, from start to finish. That is the argument they've been making. And this for, was an idea from his office, right? Right. No, McConnell is the one that came up with this strategy. If, if the reporting is to be believed, I, you know, I haven't asked them this, mm-hmm. but, you know, if you believe the reporting, McConnell's the one that devised the strategy, pitched it to Schumer and Schumer agreed. So I, I have to, you know, believe at least from the public arguments they're making that they didn't even see that they are very opposed to the idea that this would threaten the filibuster in any way. So he had no, you know, In his mind, I don't think it was anything like, oh, this is a way to stave off the filibuster. Now, I think that that is the consequence. I think now he has started the slow erosion. But I don't think that I I I have to think he genuinely believed the arguments he was making was like, oh, this is just the same as the Iran nuclear deal. When I just think it's fundamentally different. We're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the principled and tax friendly way to simplify your charitable giving. The Economist recently reported American philanthropy is going woke and predominantly funding liberal causes. Do you want to help counterbalance this influence? If so, consider listening to Giving Ventures. It'll give you an idea of the liberty-minded organizations working to erase the heavy hand of government so individuals can prosper and thrive. Giving Ventures is a new podcast designed to help donors and prospective donors discover new opportunities to change the world for the better. Twice a month, the Giving Ventures podcast highlights several nonprofit efforts, initiatives, and projects that leverage private philanthropy to solve public problems. Giving Ventures was joined recently by former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, now president of Young America's Foundation, where, in full disclosure, I also work, who shared with us what he's doing to preserve President Reagan's legacy and instill in future generations a similar love of God and country. In an earlier episode, J.P. DeGantz, president and CEO of Comunio, joined us to discuss what he's doing to strengthen marriages across the country. And Nikki Neely, president of Parents Defending Education, told us what she's doing to help parents engage with their local school boards. The show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund helping conservative and libertarian givers simplify, protect, and grow their giving. The team at Donors Trust regularly engages with policy groups, student organizations, academic centers and civil society nonprofits that endeavor to limit government, grow personal responsibility, and strengthen free enterprise. If you care about the principles of liberty and if charitable giving is an important part of your life, Giving Ventures is the podcast for you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on the latest episode by visiting donorstrust.org slash podcast. That's donorstrust.org slash podcast. Yeah, that's it. So the filibuster, and you were explaining this context, is one of the biggest, I mean, it, it, you may even say that it is the bulwark right now against like just rampant, radical progressivism. Is that not accurate at this point? Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, 
it's the same for Democrats when they're in the minority. That's the funny thing about this whole debate. It's like Democrats are like, oh, the filibuster is racist, you know, until they're in the minority. And, you know, under Donald Trump launched like over 250 filibusters. Right. <laughs> so, yes, like but for the for where we sit, where the conservatives sit, the filibuster is does two things that I think are very important to a self-government. One is that it stops you know, the sort of bathtub, you know, water in the bathtub sloshing effect, right? It just sloshes to one side and sloshes to the other. Mm -hmm. It slows the process down, which is the intent of the Senate anyway. The Senate is supposed to be the more deliberative body. Um, But the second thing, which I think is counterintuitive to people when they think about the filibuster, they think about it as a prohibition. They think about it as a blocking device, but it's supposed to force consensus Mm -hmm. because it makes minority voices matter. And, And I mean, political minority voices, right? conservatives who are never in the majority, even when Republicans, you know, are running the place, they're always in the minority. Because of those 60 votes, you actually have to do the work of legislating. You have to listen to the guy, you know, who has a concern. One guy has a concern. He automatically gets a seat at the table because of the filibuster, because you have to do the hard work of, you know, deal making and law rolling and bringing the American people along, you know, and listening to the concerns. You have to do the work of legislating that you don't have to do in a majoritarian body like the House. In the House, the majority crushes the minority, and that's by design. But in the Senate, you have to bring voices to the table because you have to collect 60 votes. And that is is it's counterintuitive when you think about it, but it's actually a consensus building device that I think is really important and really um, contributes a lot to what it means to be in a self-government. So, and this is kind of along the lines of the question that I asked a little bit ago is, is your opposition to what McConnell did, um, which obviously I agree with, I agree with your opposition, but is it hamstringing Republicans to sort of like in the in the sense that I mean, I remember when I was at the examiner, we did an editorial board meeting with Ted Cruz, and this was probably four years ago, maybe even longer. And the filibuster wasn't as big of a question at the time, um, and Republicans were in control at the time. And he said, listen, you know, I've never supported getting rid of the filibuster, but the more I think about it, um, the more I realize as soon as Democrats get power, at some point, they're just getting rid of this. And some point in the near future, they're just getting rid of this. And he was right, because the momentum on the left has absolutely built so huge from where it was then to where it is now. And I don't actually even know where Ted Cruz stands on this right now, but is your argument sort of hamstringing and is it from McConnell's perspective, sort of water under the bridge to make this carve out because it's actually just giving Republicans one political victory, given that the filibuster is all but gone in the near future anyway. I mean, it's possible. I would say that if he does think that it's like an incredibly defeatist attitude, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, why would you concede to, to something that hasn't even happened yet? And I think, again, that's what frustrates so many people with Washington, right? They, they want to see you come up here and mount a challenge and a fight on what you actually believe in. And it, it would surprise me for another reason in that, you know, McConnell is an institutionalist. You know, he has been up here for a long time. He intuitively understands the nature of the Senate and I think prides himself on, you know, preserving the the last vestiges of an institution, you know, that has served America extremely well. And so it would surprise me if he 
you know, would participate, no, you know, willingly in this erosion of the filibuster, even even as a process to sort of head off what he thinks is happening. Now, I think what this was was just sort of tactical stupidity, right? Yeah, like I was it, say. it sounds it's, like it's, your criticism is that it's a typical Beltway naivete. Right. And, you know, it kind of goes back to this idea that they both wanted to raise the debt ceiling so badly that you know, that they like didn't think through the rest of it. Because mm. I think that's honestly what was happening. It was McConnell's like, well, I can't put my guys on the record. So I'm going to create this like convoluted strategy. And he didn't even, you know, he's like, and I'm just going to say it's because it's, we did this for TPA. We did this for the Iran nuclear deal. But nobody sees it that way. Democrats don't see it that way. And I don't see it that way either, frankly. Right. When you when you take something that's always been subject to a 60 vote threshold and you say, no, just this one time, guys, of course, you know, that's changing the conversation and Democrats are going to use that to their own advantage. And, you know, the thing I the other reason I think going down that road of sort of like, well, heading off what's going to happen anyway is so deadly is, you know, because when it does happen, eventually look at the judicial filibuster. The thing people don't realize about that is that it could be undone at any point. Right. At any point. McConnell, after Reid, you know, nuked the the sort of first wave under the judicial filibuster and Republicans took back the majority, any Republican could have undone that and put the judicial filibuster back in place. No one's going to do that, obviously, because now they're both self-interested right (laughs) now. It's made the made life very easy for for the majority party. So why would you go back in and undo it? So it just it's never going to go away. Once once the filibuster is gone, it's gone forever. Mm. What's interesting here is that you're coming to this basically as an institutionalist as well, right? Well, yeah. And then, you know, I I care very much about the role of the Senate and the norms of the Senate. And I think a healthy Senate is a, is a very good reflection of where we are as a republic. I think the Senate's in a very, very bad un- and unhealthy place right now. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your, so you've actually, and I imagine, given what I know about when you were in the Senate and for whom you were working, you actually probably were involved in the the nitty gritty of the strategy and substance of a lot of debt ceiling negotiation, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. A lot of times when we get to these debt ceiling negotiations, people are like, well, you always, you know, try to do something and it always fails. People forget in the um, Congressional Budget Act, like that in 2013, that was the biggest victory fiscal conservatives ever, ever had. And it was using the debt ceiling as leverage. Basically, at the time, you know, John Boehner was Speaker of the House. Um, Obama was president and conservatives cut a deal that was like, yeah, we'll raise the debt ceiling, but you're going to give us all these discretionary spending cuts. And it worked. And you were with were you with uh, Senator Paul at the time? I was with Senator Paul at the time, and he was heavily involved in that. Interesting. Yeah, so I mean, it can be done. <laughs> you can use the debt ceiling as leverage. You can get something for it. Right. And it seems as though it, it, to make a concession uh, like we saw this month, it's an interesting kind of, um, I think, signal or glimpse into the defeatism um, that I think is unknowingly present in a lot of the decisions that Beltway Republicans make and that it's sort of like, well, this is the best we can do. And then they find a galaxy brain uh, justification for it. Like you said, like (laughs) it expires as soon as the act is passed. Um, (laughs) And it does seem, and I'm curious, I I said like, I, I do think your take on this is is that there's an element of beltway naivete here among the Republican establishment. And I think we see that time and time and time and again. And depending on who it is, it's self-interested. And and we can talk about that too. But do you think, and 
would you describe this as beltway naivete and and do you think then that that is where do you think that comes from because it seems to come up every single time major legislation is on the table including the uh the biff the bipartisan infrastructure bill yeah you know i think it's it's two things i think it's you know naivete but also that they think you are this stupid like mm-hmm. i always come back to this like because again Remember, the sort of meta narrative of this whole conversation is that nobody was actually opposed to the debt ceiling. Right. I mean, obviously, you had, you know, the Mike Lee's and Rand Paul's and Ted Cruz of the world who were going to vote against it no matter what. But the, the sort of uniparty establishment, the majorities of both parties wanted this thing to pass. And so it just becomes about faking it. Right. It becomes about creating this theater, you know, that you can go back and tell the voters how much how hard you fought when you didn't do anything at all. You just layer procedure on itself so you could fool the voters and they think you are stupid. And I think that's like the enraging part for me is that, okay, if you all support raising the debt ceiling, then just have the guts to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Let the let the five guys who don't fight like hell against it and vote and be honest with people. Right. That's why we send you to Washington anyway. So I think there's that element. And then also, you know, yes, this 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 belief that you can sell this idea that, oh, it's just like trade promotion authority when it's just even in the political context of where you're making that argument is so dramatically different than it was five years ago. Why would you give an inch on that argument like that? That is like that's the naive part that I just you know, and maybe McConnell thinks that Schumer can control his progressives. So the filibuster is not really under threat. I don't know. But I'm sorry, Schumer's being challenged from the left right now. <laughs> like he's got AOC hanging out there, sort of Damocles style. Uh, you know, I don't know that he can hold these guys off. Oh, Rachel. Um, <laughs> uh, so just to sort of put a bow on everything, I wanted to talk about our friend David Marcus's piece in Fox News. I think it went mm-hmm. up over the weekend. Um, and that's sort of the reason I was pulling at the Beltway Naivete thread, because I think David was saying that the Republicans who voted for the BIF called the left's bluff and said, listen, the uh, Democratic, the, the Democratic establishment is in leadership on the House side and the Senate side is basically lying to the progressives and pulling the wool over their eyes. And they're never going to get this massive New Deal style spending bill passed. It's just not going to happen. So vulnerable Republicans in purple districts um, or even blue districts, it just makes sense for them to vote for, you know, what the people want, this infrastructure bill. And I thought that argument was really wrong. And we talked about this a little bit, too. First of all, because I don't think any of the Republicans were using that calculation. (laughs) No. Right? They weren't. No, of course not. And, you know, this is where, like, DC's self-obsession and it's like navel gazing comes into play where they think, you know, everything that happens in Washington is going to make or break, you know, if people vote for them or don't like they think, you know, single pieces of legislation can drive entire elections. And it's like, no, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like most people. and, And this is especially true with the infrastructure bill, because if you know anything about infrastructure, no one is going to see the effects of this bill for at least five years, at least minimum. Right. It's like contracts take forever. Money takes forever to flow. Projects, especially during covid, take forever to start. So the idea that somehow this was going to get anyone elected at any point, I just think was like D.C. navel gazing times 11 (laughs) and sort of seeding the premise once again that um 
it's it's valuable for Republicans to vote for a massive piece of legislation that um, has some good, but is sort of ultimately bad, I think is also not a smart, um, th- that's not a smart sort of uh, take on the cost benefit analysis here. It's that like, if something is bipartisan, and it helps the people, then Republicans are justified, vulnerable Republicans are justified in, in voting for it. And I don't think that was the case with this piece of legislation. No. And I think, you know, what David missed in his piece, I think, is the fact that it just was a bad bill. Like, right, you know, right, take right. the political strategy out of it, whatever. It was a bad bill and Republicans shouldn't have voted for it. Even Republicans who support a modicum of infrastructure spending, which like I could probably be convinced of some of that. Right. Well, that's because you're just because you're a communist. Now. Right. Obviously, obviously <laughs> just set, setting that out there. But you know what I mean? Like, even if you support some of that, like this bill wasn't it. It was chock full of just climate insanity. Right. It was like funding for like 18,000 electric school buses. You know, yes, it had some road and bridges funding, but that was dwarfed by the amount of money that we were dumping into Amtrak without reforming it again. Right. So it, it, there was just no justification, I think, political or otherwise for this for Republicans to vote for this bill. And I remain convinced you know, that, that it was a whip failure that 13 of them in the House did. Hmm. What do you? Yeah, no, no, no. I think that's actually true. It, well, f- so quickly, what do you mean by a whip fail, whip failure for people oh, who so, haven't yeah. had the misfortune of <laughs> serving in the in Congress like you have? Yeah, I mean, well, this is especially true in the House, but you never bring a bill to the floor, or in the minority's case, you never let your members vote without knowing exactly how they're going to vote. Um, you know, there's a whip that's in charge of knowing every member's vote before they cast it. And I think the understanding among House Republicans when that bill came to the floor was that, all right, some of our guys are going to vote for the bill, but they're not going to be the deciding votes. And those guys are not going to cast their vote until Democrats have locked it in like the Democrats have been past it. But that's the, not what happened. You had John Katko from New York, you know, as a Republican cast his vote for the bill right out of the gate. And in fact, you know, Republicans really stood in the gap for Pelosi. They they helped Pelosi pass this bill in a way that I think is an embarrassment to the House Republican conference. Yeah, frankly. I think I think that's exactly what happened. I think there are way too many Republicans. I mean, 13 doesn't sound like a big number, but it actually kind of is um, way too many Republicans who sort of do see the premise time and again of the left that like this is this is slightly to the right of everything that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wants. So it's bipartisan and it's good. And it's like they've moved the goalposts so far to the left that Republicans are conceding things that are not even near the center because they're packaged as centrism. Yeah. And there's this funny argument also going around that like, well, in doing this, in splitting these bills, that was, you know, McConnell being a tactical genius because, you know, then we allowed Manchin the psychological comfort of passing the infrastructure bill. Right. And somehow that made reconciliation. That gave him the courage to say no to reconciliation. And it's like, how many, you know, how how far do you have to twist yourself into a pretzel to make that argument? Because like mm-hmm. anyone who's watched the legislative process knows that, like, you know, removing things from a bill makes it easier to pass. Like taking infrastructure out of reconciliation made it easier for reconciliation to pass at the end of the day. Like unburdening a bill is helpful, right? So like the the rhetorical link that's that's trying to be made here between infrastructure and reconciliation, I just think is bananas. And and you really have to contort yourself to make that one look normal. Um, yeah, I think all of that is is completely accurate. And but if there were one thing from your sort of vantage point on the other side of these smoke filled back rooms um, <laughs> that you would want to instill in sort of the public's understanding of how Congress works, of how Washington works, what would it be? 
you know, take some time to sort of understand how the Senate works. And this intimidates people and it shouldn't. The Senate is not complicated. Oh my gosh. Even a, Dude, I've it, listened to your training like two times <laughs> and I still don't even, I don't know any of it. But <laughs> I mean, I, but, well, you know, re, then, then follow my columns when I try to explain it because I really try to explain it in a way that, that is clear. But I think it's so important, you know, for people to even have a little bit of knowledge because it makes you powerful enough to understand how stupid they think you are. Mm. You know, because and this is why I spend so much time. It's literally why I do train staff. I also train reporters to be able to ask smart questions because so much of what the chamber does is hide behind procedure. Mm. They hide behind procedure. They blame the filibuster for gridlock when, in fact, it's their own laziness. You know, they shut down, you know, every vote in the Senate and then blame the other party when like there's a million ways you could get around that. So I think just starting to understand how they use procedure as a shield to, you know, deflect, to obfuscate, to be frankly, really lazy and get around the mandate, you know, which your member was sent there to deliver, I think is just something you really have to under try to understand, because I think as a voter, it's so instructive. And and it's sort of like you look at, you know, you're trying to look through a a dirty window and then suddenly you can see through it. Mm. That I think is really helpful. And and that's honestly why I write about this stuff, because I try to help people understand that. No, it's invaluable. And that is me not understanding it, to be clear, is purely a reflection of me, not on the clarity (laughs) and concision and and value of Rachel's trainings, because they are excellent. And all of uh, my students walk away from them feeling way more informed. Um, But Rachel, final question, um, champagne recommendations for Christmas and new year's oh my gosh so if you say <laughs> oh, yeah, oh my gosh so this is my true passion um <laughs> if you subscribe to bright uh the bright email which is a newsletter for the federalist you will see my recommendations in a whole section come out uh in tuesday's email but if there's one recommendation i have for everyone it is my most favorite uh champagne that so i love champagne i I drink it all year especially around the holidays but i call um the paul roger so p-o-l-r-o-g-e-r that is my comfort food of champagnes um and it's at an affordable price point and you will not be disappointed it was the favorite champagne it's a french champagne favorite champagne of uh sir winston churchill they supply queen queen elizabeth with her champagne so highly recommend if this is a bottle you've never had for new year's Go out and grab it. It's pretty widely available, but the Paul Roger will never let you down. I promise. It's, what's a cheap a cheese pairing with it? You can do any like hard, salty cheese with champagne. Although my most favorite pairing of all time is champagne and fried chicken. Gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> That's so American. I know. <laughs> uh, I love it. Well, Rachel Bovard, one of our favorite people, uh, senior policy director at the Conservative Partnership Institute, senior tech columnist at The Federalist. And as she just mentioned, uh, she writes every Tuesday for Bright, which is a sort of a women-focused newsletter that uh, Federalist sends out every day. It's excellent. You can subscribe to that on our site. Thank you, Rachel, so much for your expertise and your wit. Always happy to deliver. um, Maybe on the expertise, less on the wit, but (laughs) thanks for having me. Uh, Of course, of course. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor at The Federalist. Don't forget to send us questions to radio at thefederalist.com. We'll be answering them this week. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. (laughs) 